Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talked to Josh McNall. Josh and I talked primarily about his new book on the atonement, thinking through the ways that the Bible gives us rich and deep and beautiful perspectives on the atonement. We also talk a little bit about teaching theology in pastoral ministry and the importance of theology for the church. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Josh. As always, Church Grammar is brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all of their latest books and offerings. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this translation. And now my conversation with Josh McNall. But first, no big deal. have Josh McNall on the line. Josh, we uh, circled this, uh, circled each other for a while, talked about this at ETS, and uh, now we're recording this uh, in April, April 1st, actually. So I decided on April Fool's Day to uh, to make this happen. But thanks for being on, man. That's great to be on, Brandon. All right. So let's talk through, uh, first, I want to talk through your book uh, on the atonement, the mosaic of atonement. I mean, um, I told you this uh, before, but it is probably, uh, no, definitely one of my favorite reads of the last couple of years. Um, I've had this just consistent uh, nagging since at least grad school of uh, kaleidoscope or mosaic or some sort of form of atonement, right? That, that the, the scripture speaks to so many different ways the atonement works and uh, not just the functions, but the applications and the depth of riches of theology there. And so I was always frustrated by the sort of uh, bifurcation or splitting apart or saying, we don't like that. I want this and not that. And you did this great job of not only, it, it, not only just bringing them together, but doing it in a really rich a biblical way, a theological way, and I even appreciate the historical aspect that you're saying, hey, like throughout church history, people have highlighted different aspects of this. So um, what was kind of the main thesis? What led to this? Kind of what was some of your background, uh, maybe in theology or study that kind of uh, teed this up for you? And then how, uh, how were you trying to, to yeah, basically apply that here in the book? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks. Uh, that's very kind of you to say. And uh, the book kind of emerged out of a class I taught. I taught a graduate course on atonement. And so I was doing a ton of research, a ton of course prep. And I thought, man, I need to at least get something uh, published out of this, all this work that I've been doing. Yeah. And I started to notice something as I was doing reading across the field in, in atonement doctrine. And that is, there seemed to be kind of two, what I thought were two imbalances or two errors in a lot of the treatments of atonement. And so we have these these kind of historic models of atonement, uh, and those might be things like uh, penal substitution or Christus Victor, uh, moral influence, uh, recapitulation. And what seemed to be happening was that there were kind of two extremes or two errors that I was seeing. And the first error, uh, Jeremy Treat calls it reductionism. Yeah. I, I, I use the language of defensive hierarchy. And so on one side, you've got defensive hierarchy, and you've got people who are basically pitting these models against each other, or trying to rank them in a kind of hierarchical arrangement to say, no, 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 Christus Victor is the, the best and the most important, or no, 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 penal sub, you know. And it's, it's a kind of combative approach to these historic models. And uh, so that's, that's kind of one extreme defensive hierarchy and then on the other side, I noticed um, there was this move away from that 
that that I call disconnected plurality. Mm-hmm. Uh, disconnected plurality. Treat calls it uh, a kind of uh, relativism, so reductionism versus relativism, and. That's basically like, it's just basically like scattering out the pieces of atonement doctrine on the table, uh, but not connecting them in any way and just saying, ah, they're all important, you know. And uh, the kaleidoscopic view uh, is is sometimes associated with that, where you say, there's just all these different facets. The Bible is uh, highlighting different ones in different ways. But I think the weakness, first of all, I like that it's getting away from this really combative approach or this hierarchical approach. But the weakness is that I think the Bible gives us some clues as to how we can actually fit these different models together. And that's where the image of a mosaic comes in, you know, because a mosaic is is this art form where you can see the distinct pieces that make it up. But the whole point is not to focus in on just one little piece of tile or glass, but to see this more beautiful, broader image. And in sort of the art and iconography of the church, the the image I'm working with is the image of Christ, you know, uh, drawing our eyes away from debates and towards the beauty of his work to, to save his people. And so that's, those are the kind of the two extremes, um, disconnected plurality and defensive hierarchy, and then the attempt to kind of move beyond those two, those two poles toward a more integrated approach. Yeah, and so then kind of the mosaic you use is this picture of Christ, and so you kind of split this up into four parts, for lack of a better word, and kind of talk about the feet of Jesus, recapitulation, the heart, penal substitution, the head, Christus Victor, and the hands, moral influence. And so you kind of take this to the next level of going, you know, this is this is how we how we talk about the work of Christ is that it's just kind of fully embodied, deep, rich, connected uh, tissue, basically. So talk through. Uh, first of all, let's just talk through the different parts. I think they're all they're all helpful and kind of how they fit. So uh, you start out with the feet recapitulation. I love, by the way, that you bring Irenaeus in. It, it touches my uh, patristics heart uh, so deeply. Uh, so I appreciate you doing that. But but talk through the re- recapitulation model a little bit uh, historically and then kind of how you're applying it biblically and, and those kind of things. Yeah, so um, with recapitulation, obviously Irenaeus uh, writing in the you know the very beginning of the Christian tradition, he would speak about how Christ has recapitulated the human story, relived it faithfully on our behalf to sum up the entire human drama. And so the reason I spoke about recapitulation as the feat um, is because in some ways I think some of Irenaeus's insights about the identity of Jesus um, provide a foundation for these other models to stand on. And so I don't mean feet in the sense of lowest or least important, but I mean feet in terms of foundational. And so specifically, one of the big questions we have to deal with in atonement is, how can one person act on behalf of the many? Right. right? How can one person stand in for the many? And Irenaeus has this beautiful argument that has to do with the Imago Dei, that, that Jesus is um, the head of the entire human race because even Adam was fashioned in the image of the incarnate Christ. Um, even though Jesus has, you know, had yet to be born, that when God created humanity, he fashioned humans in the image of the Son, in the image of Christ. And so in the scriptures, uh, the head can act on behalf of the whole, 
And we see that with, say, the Davidic king going out to do battle on behalf of the people. We see that in lots of places in the scriptures. And so the reason that Jesus can act on behalf of all humanity and relive the human story uh, on our behalf, it has to do with his identity as the perfect image of the invisible God. And I think Irenaeus draws that out to show how it is that he can act on behalf of all of us, um, even though he's just, you know, one person who's born in kind of the middle of the story, so to speak. Yeah, so he's not just... It's almost, uh, and you can tell me if you think, uh, if you read Irenaeus this way, but it seems like he's not only doing second Adam, but a true Adam, right? So it's not like he's yes. just sort of uh, this, you know, 2.0, but rather he's the right. true and better and perfect version because Adam was fashioned in his image from the beginning. Yes, I think that's exactly right. That Jesus is the true human, you know, and in some ways the prototype for the entire human race right. If, if Irenaeus is right to say that even Adam was fashioned in, in Christ's image. So I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so we'll move to the heart. Um, in my uh, circles, in um, growing up in, well, not growing up in, becoming a Christian in uh, conservative Baptist circles, for the most part, Reformed uh, circles in, in some sense, penal substitution is sort of the, uh, if you deny this, you're denying the gospel, which, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to, uh, in some sense, I don't want to make fun of that. I think it's obviously core and essential and, and important. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has been, this is where one of those uh, kind of reductionist uh, or debate hierarchy type things have come in, where it's sort of like, if you don't have this, then whatever else you have, that's fine, but you don't have this. Uh, or if you yeah. challenge us at all, you're a heretic. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that yeah. goes into that. And, and I don't yeah. want to minimize, on the one hand, penal substitution. Uh, but I think you do a good job of talking about it as the heart. And so you're not mm-hmm. you're placing it in a hierarchy, but you're showing the relative importance or the depth through which this idea comes into play. So talk through that a little bit. Yeah, it's probably been the most controversial part of the book in some ways. Um, because it's it's really, it's really in some ways, it's kind of odd to me. But it's, it's interesting, too, that... that on the one end, if you mention penal substitution at all in an affirming way, there's a certain crowd that will reject it because you even mention it, right? Um, and then on the other hand, in another crowd, and kind of you, you sort of alluded to this, if you mention anything else alongside of it, you get you get dinged because you know this is kind of the ultimate reductionism that it's only penal sub or you know, and so what I try to do is to show that. Penal substitution, rightly conceived, I think is a biblical model of atonement. I don't think there's any way around that if we really carefully um, deal with the scriptures. But it can be it can be misunderstood, it can be misconstrued, it can be um, conveyed in ways that aren't biblical. So the reason I speak about it as the heart, there's actually a, maybe a few reasons. The heart is the blood-sending organ of the body, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, penal substitution is the model of atonement that may be most associated with the blood of Christ, you know, shed on our behalf. And um, and then you bring up conversations about propitiation or expiation. Those are blood heavy aspects of atonement. Um, And then so the other reason I talk about it as the heart is not just having to do with uh, the blood of Christ, but that I think it occupies a kind of middle position in the arrangement of these pieces. And I say that because it, I think it makes sense only upon the foundation of recapitulation. Um, because without the understanding of Jesus's 
recapitulative identity as the true human, the head who can act on behalf of the whole, then I think penal substitution does run afoul of what some people talk about as the justice problem, right? And that's the idea, well, how can it be just for an innocent person to suffer the penalty of the guilty, right? And I think recapitulation and Irenaeus is arguing about the Imago Dei actually helps to make sense of that, right? That, that justice worry that Jesus um, can act on behalf of all humanity because he's our true head and we are in some way bound up with him um, in, his, in his life. So I think recapitulation is the foundation for penal substitution. But then in that kind of middle position, as the heart's in the middle of, of the body, I think it, the victory that Christ wins, which I talk about Christus Victor as the head, right? So feet, heart, head. I think the victory flows forth or it stands on the basis of Christ's penalty-bearing death. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see several scriptures that actually make that connection between his penalty-bearing death, where he bears the condemnation for human sin, and his victory over Satan and the powers. That it's actually, it's not just victory and penalty-bearing, it's actually victory by way of his uh, penalty bearing uh, on our behalf. And so those three pieces are connected in almost a more linear fashion where the feet are the foundation, the heart occupies that central middle position, and then the victory, the head, um, stands only because of, of Christ's recapitulative identity and his penalty bearing on our behalf. Yeah, and I like how you, you title uh, one of the sections or one of the chapters there about it, you know, the beating heart of atonement, the hub, not the whole. Right? That's yes. a really good way yep. to talk about it, because you're not in any way diminishing the idea at all, but rather talking about how it works relative to the other pieces. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks. Yeah, so, um, and then you, you already started kind of getting the Christmas victory here. It is really interesting to me when you said that, too, about sort of securing the victory. You know, um, I had a conversation with a, a guy I was on staff with some time ago, several years ago now, and, and was talking about Christus Victor and this idea that I think this is, this is clearly a biblical idea and it's important and whatever else. And he kind of immediately went to the idea of, um, well, you know, if you, if you, you know, accept Christus Victor, you're denying penal substitution. You know, you got to have one or the other. And it, it was the same mm -hmm. kind of conversation. And I remember being, asking him, I mean, you sing hymns and songs like Christ has won the victory. Like you, you fully aware, you're fully aware that he's the victor. You're fully aware. You say things like he has trampled Satan under his feet. You know, these, these type of things like he has clearly won and defeated Satan, sin and death, but you right. don't like to talk about Chris's victor. And I, and I think, and I told him, you know, it's because ultimately I think what you've done is got caught up in the theological reductionistic fights that people are having instead of sort of taking a step back. So I think it's helpful the way again, that you're just, you're pulling these things together to show you, you do need all of them to actually talk about the atonement rightly. And they all mm -hmm. rest on each other in different ways and build on each other and have this reciprocal relationship almost, really, uh, almost with each other. So um, I thought it was really interesting though. In chapter eight, you talk about a triumph through trickery, the yeah, deception yeah. of Christ's victory. So maybe you could uh, explain that a little bit. I think that's a, that's, it's not provocative is not the right word, but it's, it's just a really kind of helpful, interesting way that, that you um, play it out. So talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, if you, if you look at the early church fathers, uh, there are several early church fathers who, who make this argument that one of the ways that Jesus gains the victory over Satan is through a kind of divine deception, 
or a tricking or a duping of the devil, right? And, and we get some really kind of crass analogies for yeah, what that looks like, you know, like the, the fish hook and yeah. Jesus's flesh is the bait and all that. Um, and in the modern period, the, the church, and in some cases, rightly so, has just said, look, no, 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 we're not, you know, we're not going down this road. Jesus isn't, you know, God isn't blood baiting the devil with the flesh of his son. And this isn't some sort of weird, you know, incarnational fishing operation. It does sound um, crass when you say it out loud, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to pay attention to it, though, because anytime something shows up a lot in the tradition, right, I don't want to just dismiss it without looking at it carefully. Mm-hmm. And um, and so because this shows up a lot in the tradition, I wanted to look at it, and it actually, it actually has been. There's been an attempt to kind of retrieve it a little bit, you know. And I look at some people who do that. C.S. Lewis, famously, um, at least in in fiction, is entertaining something like this. You you have some more recent sort of liberation theologians uh, who are who are interested in a victory that comes by way of trickery and not just power play, right? Um, so where I ultimately land is I do think it's entirely, um, possible to say, I'm not, I'm not just asserting this as fact, but I think it's, it's fair game to say that, um, the powers, the evil powers, including Satan and, and other sort of, um, fallen powers have a tendency to self-deception yeah. or to misunderstand the work of God because they can't, you know, it's like the idea that there's nothing more inscrutable to a liar than the truth, Yeah. you know, and that Satan can't understand the logic of love. And, you know, Karl Barth speaks about evil as inherently irrational, yeah. right? It has this tendency to not um, see the logic, uh, in this case, I think the logic of love. And so I don't say that God blood baited the devil or, or tricked him into biting the flesh of Jesus, you know, um, like the fish hook analogy. But I do think it's entirely possible that the principalities and powers have been fooled by virtue of their uh, their fallenness and their inability to understand sacrificial love. And so I try to reclaim at least a part of that uh, that sort of motif within atonement doctrine. Yeah, you brought up the, the C.S. Lewis example uh, in fiction, and that is, to me, one of the most powerful moments of the Narnia series is where the White Witch is, is standing for Aslan, and Aslan says he's going to die on, on Edward's behalf, and, mm-hmm. or Edmund's behalf, and um, you know, as she in the movie, she snickers a little bit. You kind of see this, like, got mm-hmm. her, you know, kind of thing, and nobody sees what's happening, and, and you know, she quotes the the, the uh, law to him and he says don't quote the the magic to me you know i was there when it was written sort of showing this idea of like you don't really fully understand what you're doing even whenever you or what i'm doing whenever i accept this and i think it is a beautiful picture um and your book helped me think through this too of the idea that you know satan is so prideful and so mm-hmm. and he thinks he's so powerful and he thinks that he has this i mean th- the only reason why you could say that he quote unquote fell is the fact that he didn't realize he didn't have the power of God, right? And this is how he tempts Adam and Eve, is to say, God doesn't want you to be like him. And there's yeah. just sort of this deception there that goes on that he deceives them with, but in some sense almost seems to believe himself because of how uh, just out of control he seems at times. Where it's like, don't you understand what you're doing to yourself? And there's a sense mm-hmm. in which, yeah, I think, I think there's this, this pride 
and deception that we all experience at some level in our sin of realizing we're not as great as we think we are. And so um, I think that was really helpful the way you talked through that. Um, Talk through a little bit too um, your conversation on the ontic status of Satan and sort of how Satan's actual, how is he actually relating to God and sort of like what his uh, role is for lack of a better word. Yeah. So one of the big themes in Christus Victor, the head is that Christ conquers or defeats or triumphs over Satan. And um, so I wanted to delve into a little bit like who or what is the Satan? You know, you get that definite article frequently in the scriptures, ha Satan. Um, And in the modern period, for various reasons, there has been a move to demythologize the devil, right? And I think you see that even in some polling data where people are very willing to believe in God, but when it gets to believing in a devil, they're like, eh, I don't know, that sounds a little little weird or superstitious. And uh, um, you get dangers in the Christian tradition. Uh, you know, Lewis talks about this too, like one— um, one danger is an excessive fascination with the demonic and a kind of dualism where you make Satan almost like this equal power to God. And then on the other side, there's this excessive demythologizing where you're just too embarrassed to even believe that there could be something like the demonic. And uh, so I try to unpack what the scriptures actually teach about Satan and that um, this language of the accusers, he's bringing accusation against the saints and he's bringing accusation on the basis of our sin and that God's justice demands that, that we be punished. And so I think there is some imagery in the scriptures of Satan as um, one who functions as a kind of executioner for God's wrath upon um, the sinful people. And so I think that's it also connects with the idea of penal substitution, That because one of the reasons there's no condemnation for us, those who are in Christ Jesus— is that um, God condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah, right? And so Satan, the accuser, no longer has the right to accuse um, the saints. I I flesh out a little bit, should we speak of the devil as a person, you know, Mm -hmm. a personal devil? And I kind of wrestle with various aspects um, of that, you know, the famous definition of a person, I, I think Boethius, and uh, talks about a individual substance of a rational nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, the potential challenge there is Bart's idea that evil is inherently irrational in a way, right? Um, then you have a kind of Trinitarian definition of a person, right, that right. bears a sort of likeness to um, the the persons of the Trinity, although not synonymous in any way. So. Um, I don't have any problem of speaking of a personal devil if by that we mean um, this this created being that has a kind of volition, right, sure. and power. But I want to be careful not to verge into a dualism um, that, would, that would create problems in, in theology in other ways. Yeah, I have a, a colleague here, Michael McKay, who teaches uh, one of our New Testament classes, and um, I found out by way of students several times, because I would teach Theology 1, so they, they take the, the Bible minor sequence, uh, all of our students do, and so uh, they would end up in my class right after his the next semester, and um, three or four of them at different times when I was talking about creation and created beings and talking about angels and demons and this kind of idea, all said, um, you know, Dr. McKay always says that Satan's not omnipresent and you're not that important, 
So don't think that he's just following you around. You know, this kind of, uh, and what he's doing is, I think it's super helpful, this idea of this dualism as though, as though Satan has the same properties and abilities as God himself. And yeah. you know, it kind of it kind of shocks them a little bit to hear it, and it probably would shock most, you know, average evangelical lay people to hear that because they all we talk about Satan personally in a sense that he is personally attacking all of us all the time, and mm-hmm. so I think you, the way you talk about it is sort of this. Yeah, at the at the very least, we can say he's some sort of created being with a volition, right, or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, surely. But at the same time, uh, that doesn't mean he's God. I mean, he's, he's, if he's, you know, perhaps if he's, if he's a fallen angel, which I think is, is relatively well attested, um, mm-hmm. then he's not any different than them, right? You don't expect angels to be omnipresent. But people do view anything spiritual or non-physical as automatically X, Y, Z. And so I, yeah. I try to tell students, you know, and you can respond to this, how you, what you think about it. But I try to tell them, uh, when, when you talk about Satan tempting you or accusing you, it's, a, it's more of a general... Like he is the father of lies. He is the, in some sense, the, the, the father of sin or however mm-hmm. you want to say that. And so yeah. it is all kind of indirectly in some sense coming from his seat of power as the prince of darkness or the prince of mm-hmm. the air or something like that. Um, yeah. It's not the same as saying he is waking up every morning going, hey, Josh, I'm going to come get you today. He's got demons. Right. You've got your own right. flesh and sin that's, that's right. working against you as well. That's, that's in some sense distinct from him. So how do you yeah. talk through a, a little bit more about that kind of stuff? Well, my, my dialogue partner in that chapter is a guy by the name of Walter Wink, who, you know, writes this famous winking at the devil. <laughs> it, you know, and w- Wink's trilogy has this kind of famous trilogy on the powers. And it's fascinating to read. I mean, he's just bridging literature and history and theology and biblical studies and psychology. And um, it's kind of a Jungian um, and uh, so I, it's fascinating to read. I have some some real critiques of Wink. I think he demythologizes the devil a little bit too much, you know, and reduces him to this concept of what he calls interiority. This sort of, uh, and it's a part of his what I call. And this might sound like kind of a radical label, but I call it a kind of Pelagian panentheism mm-hmm. um, in, in Wink. Um, Nonetheless, I think there's some helpful some helpful things there as well. I think, in some ways, Satan functions as an unwitting servant of God, mm-hmm. and I make I make that sounds maybe a little bit like a provocative argument, but um, he, that doesn't mean he's good. But that does mean that he's a part of the all things that work together for good mm-hmm. for those who love Christ, and he ends up um, coming back to our our language of being duped, you know. Um, he ends up in certain ways, um, not again, not because of his own goodness, but because of the goodness of God, um, his testing and sifting and things like that become a part of our sanctification in the end, even though he's ultimately, um, to be defeated. And, um, and, you know, so, so that's, those are a few issues that I bring up with wink with, you know, the, the personality or personhood of Satan and then how um, he unwittingly serves the, the wise and loving plan of God mm-hmm. at the end of the day. All right, so let's move to the fourth port, uh, part, the final one. This is the one I think um, probably in grad school particularly I heard the most critique against was this moral influence because, rightly so, there have been some theologians who have sort of said this is what Jesus is. He is only a moral influence, right? Like right. There, there's, a, there's a significant... Um, 
uh, lowering of his status as God in the flesh and, and, and what he's done in the atonement and yeah. justice of God and wrath and all the things that, that go with that. Um, and so yeah. it kind of just becomes, you know, a good teacher or whatever. And so, uh, but at the same time, you know, like, of course we want to acknowledge that we, that he is a moral influence. He is the, the standard mm-hmm. of morality. He is the, the benchmark or whatever you want to say uh, yeah. that we, that we in some sense can't attain, which is why we need him. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. So how do you talk through moral influence uh, in, in relation to uh, these other doctrines particularly, or these other parts of the atonement, I should say? Yeah, I talk about moral influence as the hands. So we've got feet, heart, head, and hands. And in the same way that you know a human, a typical human body has two hands, I talk about moral influence in two ways. And so I talk about it as the beckoning hand of Christ. And that's the hand that's saying, look, come, follow me, be conformed to my image, you know, be my disciple. That's the beckoning hand. And then I talk about it as the restraining hand, the hand that's kind of waving off certain ungodly, unchristlike impulses. And so for the beckoning hand, I chose Peter Abelyard, and uh, he is kind of the poster boy for uh, moral influence, or he's... He's called the poster boy for exemplarism, um, this idea that Christ functions just as an example. Yeah. You know, that's, and I think in some ways that's really unfair to Abelyard because if, if folks would have actually taken time to read Abelyard we beyond— that kind of stuff. We don't, that's, that's not how this works, Josh. I don't know if you know that. You just take one poll quote and just, right. <laughs> just repeat it. Uh, you know, there's this famous proof text where Abelyard says something that does sound kind of like he's, he just thinks that Jesus is just an example. But if you read that quote in context and if you read his full Romans commentary and his other work, it becomes pretty clear that uh, Abelyard uh, saw Christ's saving work in a lot of different ways, including penal substitution and Christus Victor and some of the things we've been talking about. So um, I think moral influence is essential um, to understanding the uh, essentially how not just how um, Jesus saves, but specifically what we're called to by the power of the Spirit yeah. to be conformed to His image, and Abelyard is far more well-rounded on that than some people um, give him credit for. I think the Spirit, though, is a really important emphasis in moral influence theory if we're going to avoid some of the potentially Pelagian or semi-Pelagian versions of it, right. you know, that it's it's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ that enables and equips and enlivens us so that we can be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. It's not something that we have the innate potential to do on our own. Um, and even though I'm a, a Wesleyan theologian, it's not, we don't, I don't believe that we have this innate, quote, free will. You know, I just want to tell you how many how many Wesleyan jokes I have kept to myself so far in this conversation. So thank you for throwing that softball up uh, to yourself. So, well, so I, yeah, so that's a you know trying to dispel some of the myths about kind of my own tribe and, and sometimes self inflicted myths. If I'm honest, you know, well, we all have them. Uh, you know, but uh, so so yeah, that's the that's the beckoning hand, and I deal with Abelyard there, and then I talk about the restraining hand of moral influence, and that's through a con- um, a more contemporary. Um, writer uh, René Girard, mm-hmm. the, the French literary critic and um, kind of philosopher and um, sort of a jack of many traits who just recently passed away. And I deal with his sort of scapegoat theory of atonement, which is actually a version of moral influence. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and how do you how do you sort of uh, play that out? Because I'm guessing you're not uh, going wholeheartedly into the scapegoat uh, idea. I'm not going uh, full Gerard. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> Nobody go full he's... Gerard. Let, uh, good friends don't let other friends go full Gerard. <laughs> it's a deep burn. So, <laughs> you know, he's he's kind of like Wink in some ways. I think he's a ton of fun to read, and he's fascinating. Um, I think I think deeply problematic in certain ways. But, you know, he was an atheist who began to read the Gospels and was converted to a form of uh, Christianity through that. And he thought that basically there's this mechanism in human culture called the scapegoat mechanism, whereby we vent our pent up angst and anger and conflict on an innocent victim, a scapegoat. And that's how our communities kind of deal with their problems as we blame and shame and kill and all that. And so he saw that all throughout human history. And one of the things he thinks Jesus does is he thinks Jesus unmasks the scapegoat mechanism for what it truly is, which is demonic. Mm-hmm. And he sees, they essentially he argues that what, what the powers attempted to do to Jesus was to scapegoat him, but they failed. And in in the cross, what he did, and in his resurrection, and Gerard takes very seriously the resurrection, uh, that Jesus unmasked that scapegoat mechanism, and Christianity continues to unmask it. And that's part of the reason Gerard thinks that we have this concern in um, in our culture for the victim and uh, the need to uh, to care for the victim and the marginalized, however imperfectly we do that, right? Yeah. And I think that is where the one of the caricatures of Gerard comes in is this idea that he is saying that that is what God is doing, um, or some of the scapegoat theories. I mean, I've read versions of them that have been worse who have said God had so much pent up anger he couldn't wait to scapegoat Jesus, you know, because he was so mad. You know, it's kind of this. So there's different, yeah, different versions of it that come out. And, and I like that Gerard ultimately, yeah, what he does is he says this is kind of a, a human need or whatever, however you want to say that, uh, but that's not actually what's happening. That's not exactly mm-hmm. what God is doing. I think that's helpful. But Right. Yeah, he sees, in some ways, Gerard would be the ultimate critic of penal substitution because he sees that as like, that is the scapegoat mechanism from his Spanish point, right? Um, so I think he's wrong in a lot of ways, and I go into some of his weaknesses, but I do think he's right that there is an unmasking that takes place through the work of Christ and unmasking the evil power plays of this world, uh, a scapegoating that is there, and Jesus does unmask that, as Gerard says. Uh, but Gerard is, in some ways, the ultimate reductionist. He he yeah. seems to think that he his theory is the only one, you know, and uh, sort of arrogantly, almost he is the only one in the whole history of the Christian tradition who is who has seen it, you know. Um, and so it's. I think it's very wrong in that regard. But there are some helpful points about how unma- how Christ unmasked the forces of violence and, and scapegoating that, that we can learn from Girard. Yeah, which, uh, you know, another thing I loved about this book is the idea that you do this several times of interacting with people with whom you disagree on a lot of things, but saying, hey, there are some good things we can take from this, which I think, especially in the atonement debate, maybe especially in the atonement debate, um, this is one of the places where the caricatures and the dismissing basically everybody else 
I just see it come into play all the time. I mean, I've seen, yeah. you know, N.T. Wright completely dismissed for Christmas Victor in some circles. Uh, yeah. I've seen, like you said, you know, uh, on my side of the ledger and my groups, you know, people who kind of highlight penal substitution as being like, well, you just support divine child abuse. You don't, you know, it's, it's, it happens all over the place. And I'm thankful yeah. that yeah. Uh, not only do you do a great job of connecting these things, but also of sort of saying, hey, there's, part of the way we connect these is to take the best of the tradition and the best of what the text says and the best explications of these and acknowledging the weaknesses, find a way to pull them together. I think it's really yeah. helpful. Well, I think it's, you know, it is, a, and I'm not the first one to, to do this or to, to say this, but I think it's a real shame that the ultimate act of reconciliation uh, can can be used to provide fodder for just more flame wars, you know. And, uh, and so I think the atonement as this act of reconciliation, we need to approach it in a way that is attempting to uh, learn from even those we might disagree with and to reconcile um, reconcile different perspectives where we can. Yeah. Right, let's move into a, a little bit different uh, aspect of this. You know, your, your uh, technical title at Oklahoma Wesleyan is pastoral theology, um, which, you know, in some, in some circles, uh, pastoral theology is just sort of like pragmatism or practical or whatever. It's not really theology. Um, you know, for others, theology is this academic discipline that doesn't have a pastoral or practical aspect to it. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, uh, you disagree with both of those extremes, unless you just took whatever title they gave you and, and you're just you're just doing whatever you want. But I'm assuming you actually care about pastoral theology. Um, and so, uh, talk through a little bit um, how you are uh, you think through these things. Like, what are some of the sort of pastoral uh, impulses that you have? I'm sure it's toward your students. I'm sort sure it's toward the local church. Um, how are mm-hmm. you trying to kind of bridge these gaps while you're doing this legitimate, you know, academic theology? while also having this, this pastoral aspect? Well, it's a new title for me. My dean came to me, and uh, and he noticed that. He's like, well, Josh, you're teaching, some th- you're teaching theology, and you're writing theology and whatnot, but I also teach some classes that are very obviously in the pastoral ministry side of our training. So I teach Introduction to Preaching. I teach uh, some classes that are more pastorally, and I am a pastor. I'm ordained in the the Wesleyan Church. I, I'm on staff at a local church as a associate teaching pastor, where I preach once a month. And so, uh, I'm trained as a systematic theologian. That's where my PhD is is in. But I, I want to bridge the gap between the church and the academy, and I want to keep a foot in both worlds as much as I can. You know, I think um, I think universities like mine and like yours. And the academy in general, uh, it, it's, it's, at least if we're talk, talking about theology, it's it's there to serve the church and the mission of the church. Yeah. And, and that doesn't mean we dumb everything down or we quit doing footnotes or, or you know stuff like that. But I think it does mean that we need to be um, attuned to how what we're teaching plays out in the local church and in the mission field and in... Um, the just the places where we encounter people who need the gospel and so for me having that title of, of professor of pastoral theology is a reminder if to no, if to nobody else than just to myself that i'm here to serve the church and not just my own kind of academic agenda yeah and so we're you know taping we're recording this during uh the coronavirus uh, pandemic <laughs> and um, you know, one of the things that, that you'd kind of mentioned uh, as we were prepping for this was the idea of uh, atonement uh, in the midst of pandemic <laughs> and pastoral theology in the midst of 
uh, pandemic. <laughs> so talk through some of that a little bit. Well, it's a crazy time. You know, I'm typically in my office and I, I'm here right now. I'm sitting in my living room while my kids are napping and uh, the dishwasher's going in the background. And uh, well, against the clock, man, I keep thinking I keep waiting for one of the kids to run in. I know we're <laughs> it's like, going to repeat gonna that viral that. video. Yes, exactly. That BBC video. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, probably like you, I mean, all my, our, our campus has been closed and I'm not really even supposed to go to my office. We're trying to protect and love our neighbors by practicing this physical distancing. And, um, at the time we're recording this, we don't yet know, um, how serious it's going to get, but it seems like it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Um, and so for the first time in my life, um, I've lived kind of a charmed life in some ways. You know, I haven't experienced a lot of violence, a lot of death. Um, I've been confronted with the, kind of a heavy anxiety about the safety of the people I love and my kids. My my two-year-old had a really bad asthma attack right as this was all starting. And we were trying to weigh whether we could take him to the emergency room because he was having a hard time breathing. Mm-hmm or whether that was actually more dangerous because he might get this, you know, killer virus thing. So um, that's where we are right now. I think the atonement, especially as we're in, when we're recording this, the season of Lent, you know, um, one of the things the atonement reminds us is that Christ understands what it is to face um, the anxiety and the fear of death and not just the possibility, but the actuality of it. Mm-hmm. And that he understands, you know, when he when he cries out in Gethsemane, you know, if it would be possible, may this cup pass from me. That's coming face to face with the anxiety of of an impending death and suffering. And and so uh, Christ knows that he understands our humanity and um what and that's i think helpful for those of us in this season where we don't quite know what's going to happen next the one thing we do know is that we have a savior who can fully empathize with um the fear of death or the the anxiety regarding death yet he was without sin you know uh, and he he paved the way as our as our forerunner um through death and, and to the other side, which is resurrection. And so that's something that um, I'm clinging to, and I think a lot of Christians are right now, is as we face something that's kind of new for us uh, and, and uncertain territory. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, it's been, you know, I've, I've told my wife one of the, the really interesting things is, we, you know, our, our university, Cedarville, is in a very small community. Uh, we are literally, we joke about being in the middle of the cornfields, but if you drive in either direction, you run into cornfields. Like we are actually yeah. in the middle of them. Uh, in every direction. And so, um, you know, we had this, this kind of bustling university out here with 4,000, almost 4,000 students who are on campus. Mm-hmm. And that is, there is nothing else to do here besides be on campus and be at school. You know, we have a subway yeah. and we have some mom and pops and we have one gas station and Dollar General. You know, it's 20 minutes yeah. to Kroger. And so yeah. um, when the students are here, it, the place is alive and there's just all these ministry opportunities. And I, I mean, a student mm-hmm. can walk uh, from their dorm to my house in less than 10 minutes, five minutes in, in some cases, uh, depending on what side of campus they're on. Um, and so there's this real, um, you know, closeness that we have with students and this ability to have mm-hmm. them in our homes and to, to see them uh, even at the store or at restaurants and stuff. And um, mm-hmm. it's been really strange, you know, being on the other side of that because not only are the students gone 
And so you kind of lose that face to face. Now we're figuring out how to do online, you know, when this mm-hmm. is, when this is happening. Yeah. Uh, but then on the, and then our church, you know, which is, which is made up of a lot of students, uh, we're not meeting. So we're, you know, we're watching right. church online. We're watching services online. We're doing community group via zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, the students are gone. And so I'm FaceTiming the students I'm discipling that are in our house every week. I'm FaceTiming every week now. Yeah. Um, and so it is, it is a, it's a unique um, time to think about mm-hmm. the things that, that you're saying that are so helpful of, you know, um, just because this is unique for us doesn't mean that God doesn't know what's happening, that he doesn't understand. Yeah. And then in some sense, he can't use it in a really unique way. Um, what's mm-hmm. that phrase? Um, was it, uh, I can't remember it now. I'm going to draw a blank on it. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, whatever it is, it's basically it basically says that uh, you get creative whenever you run out of ideas, right? It's this kind of like yeah, yeah. Uh, invention is yeah. the something of something. Yeah, yeah. No, necessity is the mother of invention. That's it. That's it. I figure if I gave it, I threw enough uh, carrots out there, figure it out. Um, but there is a sense in which, as hard as it is to not have all that right now, there's this uh-huh. other side of thinking through how do we still love and serve people. Uh, yeah. when we can't just have them walk over to our house. And so uh, anyway, uh, all that to say, it's really helpful the way you're, you're kind of framing that of um, this is part of what it means to be in Christ and be part of Christ is uh, yeah. the fact that this is still true and that the church is still together uh, and that Christ yeah. is still holds us together and that we're still the body, even though we mm-hmm. can't be together. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, um, yeah, so let's uh, let's end on this. You know, I uh, I was going to say that I make some uh, was going to make some Wesleyan jokes, but um, I became a Christian in my teens at a Southern Baptist church, uh, but really uh-huh. was discipled uh, by a, a Wesleyan pastor. And my first job was a youth pastor at a Wesleyan church. Um, I, I love that the pastor that I work for. He's he's uh, his son is my best friend, and he's a dear mentor mm-hmm. to me. Uh, and I don't know if he's going to be listening or not. Uh, so so can you don't have to say the name, but what yeah, part yeah. of the country was that in? Uh, Texas, yeah. Okay. Uh, out in DFW. So Bernie, I love you. But, um, you know, it was very much, uh, uh, here's five point Arminianism. This is what it is. And so yeah, I was yeah. sort of raised in that, you know, theologically, theologically raised in that. Uh, mm-hmm. and so I still appreciate, uh, the Wesleyan tradition, even though I am an apostate, uh, or have, have maybe lost my salvation depending on, uh, who I ask. So, um, I haven't had enough Wesleyans on here or Methodists on here. Uh, I've had Lynn Coick has been on here. Yeah. And, um, I joke with Matthew Bates that he's a Wesleyan, even if he doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> We'll take him. I like Matt. Yeah. So anyway, it, it's good to have it's good to have a, a Wesleyan a brother on here uh, who's doing good theology. I can agree with. That's the big picture. So, well, you know, the Wesleyan tribe. Every tribe is strange in its own ways. You know, we're a, a smaller one, um, and specifically in in the realm of academia, very small. Right. You know, Wesleyan theology has tended to be more. Um, you know, focused on evangelism, preaching, um, holiness in terms of uh, social action, social justice, stuff like that, but not really an academic, you know, denomination in a lot of ways. So in some ways I'm okay with that, you know, but in other ways um, I want to uh, to change that in the sense that it, I think that there is a need for in the same way that we've talked about how the different pieces of atonement kind of come together to add beauty to the doctrine, I think the different traditions of the church can come together to add beauty um, to the witness of the church and uh, that we can mutually sharpen one another and uh, help each other to to grow and to see blind spots. And uh, I, I certainly think there are some some traditional blind spots within Wesleyan 
theology, and then also some areas where Wesleyan theology can help the, the kind of broader church to, uh, um, to see different facets of the tradition. So um, I'm, I'm not ashamed to quote the Apostle Paul or whatever. <laughs> Paul is, is I'm not a uh, theologian. You don't get him. So. I, got, I guess I'll say, to quote James then. Uh, <laughs> I'm not ashamed to be a Wesleyan theologian, but I would be, uh, I'm more proud to be, uh, to be known by, uh, you know, the name of Christ than the name of Wesley. Yeah, I think Wesley would probably appreciate that too, right? So. Well, man, Josh, thanks so much uh, for being on. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. And uh, I know you got some other things coming down the pike that are, are going to be uh, excellent as well. So uh, I will we'll find a way uh, to do this again soon. I'd love to. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.